My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. At that time, John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow us. Jesus replied, Do not prevent him. There is no one who performs a mighty deed in my name who can at the same time speak ill of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Anyone who gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, amen, I say to you, will surely not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were put around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than with two hands to go into Gehenna, into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life crippled than with two feet to be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The Gospel of the Lord. Growing up, the youngest of three boys, some decades removed from our sibling battles, for the most part, I've grown to appreciate how difficult it was and it is for parents to raise kids. The challenge of trying to give their children freedom to explore new things, to navigate the wide and extreme variety of choices, to learn how to work things out for themselves and not have to depend on mom and dad to fix things all the time. All these things are a learning process for both the parents and the kids. Some lessons learned among the churn boys weren't exactly what mom and dad intended. When we were roughhousing or wrestling upstairs, whether it was just because we were wild lunatics imitating the WWF as it was called at the time, it's now WWE, or because we were fighting over something legitimately, my parents always knew what was going on. It was when it got to a certain decibel that we would hear a shout from downstairs. What's going on? That we kind of treated like a snooze button on an alarm clock and just ignore it. Second shout would be boys. We recognized that was DEFCON 2. That was our reminder that not to stop what we were doing, but that we had to be quieter about it. At that point, we could have been in this massive fight with one another, wanting to tear each other limb from limb, but we would still be in agreement. It was best for mom and dad not to get involved. Eventually, though, even those rules of engagement in that area of common ground would be breached as whatever it was we were doing grew more aggressive or dangerous, sometimes even destructive. And that's when we would hear three little words that this was the final warning. This had better stop here and now. 
those three words, whether it was my mother screaming them at the top of her lungs, or the equally effective imposing figure of my father standing in the doorway, saying them very clearly and definitively, cut it out. Full disclosure, we didn't always listen. We rarely listened. Uh, Sometimes that meant there was a pause for the moment and saying under our breath to one another, I'll get you later. Sometimes the fight just continued, which resulted in people crying, punishments being issued, and just general unhappiness. In either case, these eventualities occurring, we knew that we had brought whatever unpleasantness on on ourselves by ignoring that final warning. My parents didn't want us to be fighting, and they sure didn't want to punish us. That was the reason for the warning to cut it out, that we had it was ultimately our choice, that something we had made, and we had now to deal with the consequences of that. Cut it out. The memory of hearing those words rang through reading to this gospel for obvious reasons. This isn't some parable or story today. Jesus sounds pretty direct and definitive and, and serious himself as he talks about cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin, cutting off your foot if it causes you to sin, plucking out your eye if it causes you to sin. That type of language and imagery is pretty graphic and pretty easy to understand, yet looking around at us all, we don't see anyone self-maimed sitting next to each other at Mass or even on this side of the altar. Even outside of this place, we don't see judges on judges' benches that are maimed. We don't see any of our professors that or without a foot, or anyone else in the governmental seat that might have plucked out their eyes. You don't have to be a theologian to recognize Jesus isn't expecting when this gospel reading is proclaimed for there to be some hacksaws and other tools on the side here, just so that you'll have it ready for you to mutilate your body. He's using dramatic language to catch our attention. But for the most part, way too many of us easily dismiss it, kind of hit the snooze button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll deal with that when Lent comes around again. Or we can imagine that those words are directed to someone else, to the serious sinners, or at least those bums who never come to Mass, or the people who only come on Christmas or Easter. We can easily delude ourselves that simply being here puts us in much better shape than so many others. And we can come up with a, a list of examples to prove our point pretty quickly. Shamefully, I will admit myself included. But think about the context of this reading. Who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the apostles and the disciples. These are the ones who had left everything to follow him. These were the ones who were closest to Jesus, who not only heard his life-giving words and were witnessing his tremendous deeds, but were beginning to experience the power of the Holy Spirit themselves and the ability to go and do the same. They had started it to be able to do miraculous healings and driving out demons themselves. So obviously, they're not the big sinners, are they? If you're Peter or Andrew or James or John, you'd imagine, no, that's the, the Jewish religious authorities who manipulated the word of God to exert more power and control on the people. They better listen up. Or the Roman occupiers who had basically enslaved the chosen people. They might want to start getting ready to hop around on one foot. Or your general assortment of sinners out there in the world, those getting drunk, those gambling, the prostitutes, 
they need to hear Jesus calling them out with such serious language. But, but not us, not these guys, his first and closest followers. But Jesus is speaking to them, to Peter, Andrew, James, John, and all of his closest friends and followers in this instance. And what did they do that was, was so wrong? They had gone to Jesus complaining. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow us. So they could see and hear that whoever this rogue exorcist was, this person had had some encounter, some conversion that their life had been transformed by Jesus. And the apostles' reactions are they're jealous, they're arrogant, they're, they're possessive thinking they're in control, they're in charge of everything. Jesus called us. They seem to forget that it wasn't that Jesus taught them a, a skill or a recipe that made it possible for them to do all these amazing things like casting out a demon. They were doing all those things by the power of Jesus' name. The disciples didn't even realize how as they were following him and striving to do his will and to serve him by serving others, how these these thoughts and these feelings that were selfish and self-centered and all that out-of-control pride and ego had just emerged. It wasn't only undermining their mission, it was endangering their souls. And it's in that space that Jesus launches into this hyperbolic language of cutting off limbs and plucking out eyes, reminding them that the only thing that they are ultimately in control of is how do they respond? How are they living as called by God and as followers of Jesus? And first and foremost in that is recognizing that sin is something serious that we need to treat seriously. Sin is something that needs to be rooted out at its earliest stages. The apostles, the disciples, don't realize that even though they've already sacrificed so much that that doesn't guarantee that these unjustified, unreasonable angers are going to come back to their heart and close off their heart. They consider this anonymous man who has in some way had his life transformed by Christ as a threat to themselves. So they want to run over to him. They want to grab him. They want to stop him from doing what he was doing. And Jesus counters the lunacy of those thoughts, telling them, before you see him as a threat and run over to him and grab him, Cut off your foot, cut off your hand, and pluck out your eye if that's what you want to do. If you're that fixated on jealousy, if you're that arrogant, if you're that fixated on what you want to do, what you think is right, and if you're that self-centered and self-focused on just on yourself and not on me, cut them off. Cut it out. The context here and now is different. Of all the things that we deal with in our lives, the things that we struggle with or distract us, people acting in Jesus' name who are not here with us, is probably pretty low on our list of complaints that we want to share with Jesus. But the importance of his lesson is that we need to have that same intensity internally about how serious are we recognize God has called us to be his children. That in our baptisms and our confirmations, as we receive the Eucharist, we've made a definitive decision to follow him. So do our lives demonstrate people that are striving to live as God's sons and daughters? 
Or are we quick to point everyone else who's doing far worse to make ourselves feel better? It's, it's awesome that we are here. That each of us in our lives have had an encounter with Jesus Christ where we know he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. That we've come to know the importance that the life of faith makes and that that made us make that choice to be here for Sunday night mass. That's so great. And just like the first apostles, Jesus is happy. We responded to his voice and we're following after him. But as he says elsewhere in the gospel, to whom much is given, much is required. We can't look or treat our sins as simply these distractions that as long as we fulfill the minimum requirements like make it to mass and don't kill somebody, that's good enough and we're basically good people. Jesus wants us to pursue holiness, to strive to become saints, to desire those things. And that's not determined simply in this 45 to 60 minutes once a week where we hear his word and receive his body and blood in the Eucharist. What does the rest of our day look like? What does the rest of our week look like? What does the rest of our life look like? Am I numbing myself consistently with drugs and alcohol? Are there things I'm watching or looking at on television or any screen that are outright sinful or leading me into sin, which can go from something that's outright pornographic to just taking in hours of news that leads me to anger and being uncharitable to people who I disagree with? Have I gotten addicted to mindlessly scrolling through social media Have I accepted binging something on Netflix, Hulu, or whatever streaming service? Just even think about that. The term binging was always associated with destructive behavior, like binge drinking or binge eating. Now it's almost treated as an acceptable use of our time, as a form of entertainment. There's no shortage of things that affect and afflict us. And it's not a matter of looking at a list of things and deciding for ourselves, well, that's worse than this, so as long as I don't do that, I'm not as bad as someone who does. The only self-centered thing that's good for us to do is an examination of our conscience. And that's not something that was just meant for our first penance or something we hear about during the season of Lent. That's something we have to do on a consistent basis. And I I even actually brought copies of an examination of conscience on, on the table over there that... If you don't want to look on the internet, you can find it very easily on the internet, but it's already printed out for you there, too. I killed the tree for you. So, But an essential part of that is like just to go through that list, and if or rather when sins start coming to mind, to get to confession. And a part of the confession is to start to see those things, so start to see those patterns that pop up as a call to make a, a decisive change so that I don't get comfortable with these things. And I don't get lazy in my spiritual life. Jesus, when he reacts to John in this gospel, isn't mad at John. He loves John. And he knows John loves him. And that's why he doesn't want him to get distracted by anyone or anything that's going to undermine that love. And the same is true for you and me. Jesus wants us to be just as vigilant each and every day on our lives to reflect How single-minded and focused are we on being his? Where we can see some of the things that we're doing that are obstacles and here cut it out. Not as a warning, 
but as a reminder of what we want to do because we simply want Him.